Um, we're going to be in uh, Joshua, the fourth chapter. Joshua, the fourth chapter, verse 1. The Marine Corps Memorial is in Washington, D.C., that area there in, in Virginia, the Arlington, Virginia uh, Cemetery and all of that area there. And uh, it's, a, it's actually a snapshot of a battle in Iwo Jima. And it shows these men moving forward together with the flag uh, and, uh, and fighting the battle for our freedom. Uh, we, we enjoy monuments because monuments teach us things about our history, but also uh, they inspire us with the courage of those who've gone before. And they uh, motivate us to uh, value our country and the things that uh, others have sacrificed for us to enjoy. And uh, so monuments have been a, an important part of our national life. Uh, but I'm convinced that spiritual monuments are even more important than that. Um, God has given us some spiritual monuments. Um, if you've ever taken the Lord's Supper... That is an object lesson of what Christ has done for us. If you've ever gone through the ordinance of baptism and you've been dipped down into the water and brought back up, you have been a part of an object lesson or memorial that God has set up. Uh, in the Old Testament, one of my favorite memorials uh, or object lesson might be a better word for this one is uh, the story of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, God tells Hosea to go and to marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer, which I always thought was funny because I always thought of Gomer Pyle when I, when I read that name. But um, she, she was actually a prostitute. Hosea marries her. She stays faithful to him for a while, and then she begins to stray, and she cheats on him. Time after time after time after time after time. And he starts naming the kids, you are not my son. You are not my people. <laughs> because he knows that it is the product of infidelity. But God told Hosea to marry Gomer because God wanted to use their marriage as an object lesson for the people of Israel. And they were to see there that, uh, what, first of all, what their behavior was, but also to see what God's heart toward them was. Because finally when Gomer is, is used up and nobody wants her anymore, she's being sold on the auction block as a slave. And God tells Hosea, you go buy her back. And he goes and he, he buys her back. And brings her back into his home. And God says, that's my heart of love for you, Israel. He says, there's going to be a day that's going to come when those who are called not my people will be called my people. And those who are called not my son will be called sons of the living God. And so... It becomes a, a, a monument or an object lesson of God's amazing grace. 
How amazing is the grace of God? Now, I could go through many different uh, object lessons in Scripture to give you examples, but why do we need these examples? Well, uh, we need them to remind us of what God has done in the past and also so that we can trust God for the future. Okay? We're going to talk about some specifics of that, but that's the basic gist of it. God gives us monuments to remind us of what he's done in the past so we can trust him for what he's going to do in the future. And all of us need those reminders, right? If you've ever had a, a mountaintop experience, why do you call them mountaintops? Because there's a valley on this side and there's a valley on that side, right? <laughs> and so we have to remember what God has done so we can trust him in the valley. Joshua is bringing the people through the Jordan River through the supernatural power of Almighty God. And he tells the priests, you stand here. God stops the Jordan River and it's piled up in a great heap. The people are crossing forward. Then Joshua says to some of the men, he says, that one man from each tribe, he says, he says, I want you to go get some stones out of the river. Right where the priests are standing. And you carry these stones on your shoulder and you bring them up to the other side to where we're going to camp. And then ultimately we're going to take them to a place called Gilgal. And we're going to set up a monument there to what God has done for us. Some also believe, based on how you, you translate verse 9, that Joshua himself also set up a monument in the Jordan, right next to where the priests were standing, to show the people what God had done, and to help them remember, and to help them to trust God and follow God in the future. We need to trust God with our future. And because of that, God has given us some object lessons. The title of my message is Why God Uses Object Lessons. Um, and so look with me at verse 1 of Joshua 4. It says, After the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, Choose twelve men from the people, one man for each tribe, and command them, Take twelve stones from this place in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing, carry them with you, and set them down at the place where you spend the night. So Joshua summoned the twelve men he had selected from the Israelites, one man for each tribe, and he said to them, Go across to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you lift a stone on his shoulder, one for each of the Israelite tribes, so that this will be a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean to you? You should tell them, The waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the ark of the Lord's covenant. When it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan's water was cut off. Therefore, these stones will always be a memorial for the Israelites. The Israelites did just as Joshua had commanded them. The twelve men took stones from the middle of the Jordan, one for each of the Israelite tribes, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the camp and set them down there. Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan where the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant were standing. The stones are still there today. 
The priest carrying the ark continued standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people in keeping with all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people hurried to cross, and after everyone had finished crossing, the priest with the ark of the Lord crossed in the sight of the people. The Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh went in battle formation in front of the Israelites, as Moses had instructed them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed to the plains of the Jericho uh, in the Lord's presence. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him throughout his life as they had revered Moses. The Lord told Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up from the Jordan. When the priests carrying the ark of the Lord's covenant came up from the middle of the Jordan, and their feet stepped out on solid ground, the water of the Jordan resumed its course, flowing over all the banks as before. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern limits of Jericho. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you crossed over. Uh, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. So why God uses object lessons? Well, first of all, he uses them because they're a sign of his goodness. They're a sign of his goodness. In verse 6, he says, so this will be a sign among you. A sign of what? Well, later he says, he says that you have the ark of the testimony. Uh, this is a testimony to what God has done. He had made a covenant with Israel, but more than that, he had made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, listen, I'm going to bring you to this promised land. And according to God's promise... He had brought the people into the land. It's also a sign of his goodness because they didn't deserve to be there. If you look and you, you read the wilderness accounts, time and time again, the people rebelled against God. Time and time again, God had to discipline them. And, and ultimately, one generation refused to trust God to go in the promised land, and they died in the wilderness. So the second generation now is coming, and they have just failed God in the Transjordan area there where they slept with women of Moab and worshipped false gods. And they had to, to be redeemed and forgiven of that so they would be prepared to cross over into the land. They were crossing over by God's grace and God's grace alone. Praise God for His grace. But these stones were be, to be a sign of His goodness. Now when you take the Lord's Supper, it is a sign of His goodness. Because God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Jesus' body, just as the bread was broken... As Jesus passed out the bread at the Last Supper, so Jesus' body was broken at the cross. 
Just as his blood was shed on the cross, he says, here's the cup of my blood of the new covenant. This do in remembrance of me. And, and Jesus gave them a picture of his shed blood. The, the Bible says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's a sign of his goodness. How good is God? We need to be reminded of that. Uh, praise God. Uh, something is different in my life today. And it's all, it's not because of me, it's all because of the amazing grace of my God. I want you to know uh, that any joy that I experience in my walk with God is because of His grace. Any hope I have in the midst of the circumstances is because of His grace. How great a God we serve. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I'll lay it down willingly. And Jesus, not only was his body broken, but Jesus willingly took our sin upon himself. Corinthians says it this way, God, speaking about God, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus became our sin at the cross so we could become his righteousness. That, that, that's why I can come before the throne of grace boldly. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's all because of his grace. And so God uses memorials because they're a sign of his goodness. What about the tabernacle? That's another sign, right? God used that as a sign that God was making a way for a sinful people to have fellowship with the Holy God. That's what we do uh, with the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're realizing there's a way that has been made. And all of those tabernacle sacrifices look forward to Jesus. And so it's a sign of His goodness. And, and we need to be re reminded and see these signs of goodness from time to time uh, so that we can be reminded of what God has given us. That brings me to my second point. Not only um, uh, is why God uses object lessons, not only because they're a sign of his goodness, but because they're an opportunity to teach. In verse 6, he says, In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You should tell them. <laughs> it's an opportunity to teach, right? When I remember when I was a little boy, my mother uh, was teaching me about the Lord's Supper. And she said, she said, Roger, you haven't trusted Christ yet, so you can't take of the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is for Christians to remember what Jesus has done. And the body, uh, the, the bread represents his body. And the grape juice represents his blood. And she put it in real simple terms because, you know, that's where I was. But uh, I'd never forgotten that all these years later. Uh, then I came to Christ and those symbols were infused with new meaning. <laughs> but uh, it was an opportunity. Same thing with baptism. You can teach with baptism. But Joshua's telling the people, look, 
When your children say, what, why are you going to look at these stones? It's a pile of rocks here. Why are you going to look at it? You're to tell them, because God did something amazing. There were two million of us, and God stopped the Jordan River at his flood stage, and he dried the ground before us, and we walked through on dry ground. And we came to the other side, just as God had promised. And through this outward visual representation, they would remember the greatness of what God had done. Uh, some people will wear a cross uh, because uh, they, they want to remember what Jesus has done for them. But whatever the symbol, God gives us memorial uh, things and he gives us object lessons so that we will have an opportunity to teach our kids. Um, so uh, take these opportunities that God has given you. Uh, here's another example. You may be reading the Word of God, and your child notices that you read the Word of God each morning. They say, why do you read the Word of God? Here's your opportunity to teach, right? Because it's my spiritual food. Johnny, do you ever get hungry? What do you like to eat? Well, this is my spiritual food, okay? This is what I like to eat because I need it for my soul. Um, this is how God speaks to me. Uh, Dad, Daddy, why do you get down on, on your knees and pray? Or why do you close your eyes to pray? Because I want to focus on God. And I want to tell him what I'm going through in my life. So you kind of get the idea. And so uh, these object lessons gave an opportunity for people to teach and to be also reminded. And that brings us to the third thing. Not only does God use object lessons because they're a sign of his goodness, because they're an opportunity to teach, but thirdly, because they are an eternal remembrance. He says, therefore, these, this is verse 7, therefore, these stones will always be a memorial for the Israelites. <clears throat> now, the eternal remembrance was to be set up in this pile of stones that they had there in the Jordan and in, in, in Gilgal. They were to remind them of what God had done long ago. Now, we don't even know where Gilgal is now. The nation of Israel was destroyed. As far as I know, those stones are nowhere to be found. Uh, many years have passed, but can I tell you, God is still God. And what he has done is still powerful today. Um, and so, it's to be an eternal remembrance uh, if, if I was an Israelite, I might want to go uh, put, put the pile of stones where I thought Gilgal used to be. So we need to set this reminder back up because uh, we need to remember what God has done for us. Um, and Jesus said, uh, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes. It was to be a persistent thing, a persistent reminder. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we remember what Jesus did, but we also look forward to what he will do. That's the awesome thing about the gospel. It's not done. 
Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. One of these days, I'm going to get on the train. <laughs> I'm going to shed this old body, and I'm going to receive my glorified body, and I'm going to be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And so I'll ever be with the Lord. You see, as I remember what Jesus has done, so you show the Lord's death till he comes. It motivates me to trust him for the future. Since Jesus has raised, we can trust him for resurrection. By the way, 500 eyewitnesses, that's a pretty good amount of eyewitnesses, isn't it? The earliest scripture, uh, even by critical scholars, I mean, they, they even recognize uh, like a 1 Corinthians 15 as being uh, just from either, either from a matter of months after the death of Christ to at the most a year and a half or so. 500 eyewitnesses, they're still living at the time. This wasn't done in a corner. <laughs> he says, go talk to the witnesses. He's alive. Talk to Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> he was persecuting us. and He was throwing us in jail and putting, putting us to death. And, uh, but he found out that Jesus was alive on the road to Damascus. And the light shone around him and he was terrified. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And his life was forever changed. I want you to know, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. There's another resurrection coming. And we're going to be caught up to be with him. So, God uses these monuments as a reminder of what he has done so we can trust him for the future. See, God wasn't done with the Israelites. He didn't just bring them across the Jordan so they could look back at the past and say, well, didn't God do some great things in the past? Let's just sit here on our blessed assurance. Right? No. He, he let them see what God had done and be reminded of what God was doing and who he was so that they could trust him for the future. And they would go and they would conquer Jericho and they would conquer uh, many cities in the north and the south uh, and, and they would take the land that God had given them to acquire. The same thing is true for us. Listen, God's probably done some things in your life. If you've been a Christian for a while, there's some answered prayers. There's some things you've seen God do, and you've, you've maybe shaken your head in amazement at what God has done. Let that motivate you to trust Him for what He will do. Don't just focus on the past, but let it motivate you to look to the future in faith. So we need to remember. And, and whenever a soul is saved by the grace of God, we remember the only way that it can happen through the ordinance of baptism, right? One reason we are, are Baptists is we, we believe that word baptizo means to dip or immerse, Okay? Uh, so, it's a picture, right? You're laid down into the water, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. 
Each time we, we see somebody baptized, we're seeing what Jesus did to make it possible. Right? Death, burial, resurrection. There's only one way to be saved. And that's through Jesus Christ. But when we see that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it ought to make us say, praise your name, God, for your grace to me. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died for my sin and he rose again. But it also shows us the secret to the transformation and power of our lives as Christians. Because the Bible says we died with Christ and we're raised with Christ. Okay? I died to my old way of life. I'm raised to walk in newness of life. And, and what is it that gives me the power to live this new life? The resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Ephesians says, don't you know that the power of the resurrection is in you? This is the power he's given. So we can pray, thank you, God, for giving me the power. Now, we may not always employ it in the way we should. But thank God we have it. It's ours as a heritage. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live a godly life as we learn to walk with him by faith. So it's an eternal Remembrance. God gives us object lessons as a sign of his goodness, an opportunity to teach, an eternal remembrance, and finally a pointing to him. He says in verse 9, Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. Why? I mean, why couldn't they just go to the closest spot next to the Jordan and pick up some stones? Why do they have to go over where the priest is standing? There were actually four of them. One under each side of the pole. There were two poles on each side of the ark and one under each side of the pole. Holding the ark, standing there in the Jordan River. Why? Because the ark was a symbol of the presence of God. You see, God was wanting to point them from this, by this monument to point them to him. But the priests were also a symbol of someone. And his name is Jesus Christ. Our great high priest. The one who ever lives to make intercession for us. They were being pointed to God. Sometimes God would give you something in your life that is so difficult. There's no way to handle it but to take it to him. And when you do that and you see God work and move, there's nothing you can do but say, God, how amazing you are. I, I've seen God work in, in a church situation, the former church I was at, where God worked a miracle and healed the church and brought revival and it was truly wonderful what God did. And listen, I didn't have a clue how to do it. I was just taking that next step. You step in the, step in the water, Roger, you know, step in the Jordan. Man. I don't know, see what I'll do. I was just taking the next step. That's all I knew how to do. And, but God did something that only he could do. By the way, every time a soul is saved by grace, 
That's something only God can do. (laughs) I believe that's the greatest miracle of all. To change the basic nature of a person. Yes, we still have the old nature, but we have a new nature. Given to us by Christ when we come to faith in Him. What an amazing thing. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away and all things are become new. That is a miracle indeed. How does one go from a persecutor of the church to the greatest missionary probably of church history, the Apostle Paul? He's a new creature in Christ. There used to be an old song the cathedral sang um, in the, the uh, lyrics. I don't remember the name of the song, but the lyrics that today I went back to the place where I used to go. And, and he talks about how I don't, I don't go to these places anymore. Or I don't, he said, you know, today I, I went back to the home where I used to live. My kids have a new daddy. My wife has a new husband. Why? Jesus Christ made the difference. Only God can change the human heart. Some of us have seen God do the impossible Healing a sickness. We've, we've had some testimonies of that here in our church. And the doctors gave up hope. And they said, there is no, there's no, no answer. There's, this person's not, not going to recover. And through God's answered prayer, they recover. <laughs> Points to him, right? <laughs> we, listen, sometimes the greatest blessings in the world can be the problems you can't solve. Because it redirects your eyes to the only one who can solve them. When they looked at that Jordan River, probably a mile across at that point, they couldn't do it on their own. But God intervened in a great way. And so Joshua said, don't you just get those stones from anywhere. You get them right where the priests were standing. Because we're going to acknowledge that this was the power of God. So God gives us object lessons as a sign of his goodness, as an opportunity to teach, as an eternal remembrance, as a pointing to him, and finally as a motivation to fear. As a motivation to fear. If you look at verse 24, this is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty. And so that you may always fear the Lord your God. The motivation to fear. So that you may always fear the Lord your God. Why? Because the Israelites tended to stray. Listen, I want to tell you something. You better pray for your kids. Just one generation after this generation that entered the land, the people of Israel turned their backs on God. And the Bible says in Judges, they did what was right in their own eyes. That's where we are in America today. And if we don't teach our kids, and if we don't pray for our kids, and if we don't set an example, the world's going to get them. We better, we better put up some memorials in our lives and set some examples for our kids and give them some motivation to fear 
the true and living God. Just about everywhere I look, I see the explanation, well, the fear of God is just the reverence or respect. I disagree with that. Yes, it includes reverence and respect, but it's not just reverence and respect. I think in our desire to not be uncomfortable, we want to remove fear from the equation. But fear is a reality. And I think our country and our families and our people in the United States could use a little bit of the fear of God. Now, there's, there's different kinds of fear, right? You have fear of someone who's evil. That's not the fear he's talking about. Someone who's evil, that you can have a paralyzing fear of, of someone like that. No, this is a fear of someone who's good. I used to fear my dad when I was a little boy. I knew he loved me. You know, he brought me presents at my birthday and Christmas and spent time with me, did all these things. I knew he was a good guy. But I also knew that if I got out of line, I was going to have to face him. (laughs) Those dreaded words my mother would say, I'm going to tell your daddy when he gets home. And I knew that uh, the Board of Education was going to be applied to the seat of knowledge. And, uh, and so I, I, I had some fear there. Uh, this is the kind of fear he's talking about, except th- the fear that God gives us. He, he's not, he doesn't want us to be afraid that he's, like some, he's waiting to pounce on us. But he does want us to have enough fear of him to recognize that if we choose a sinful path, and we persist in that sinful path, he will discipline us. Why? Because we deserve it? No. What we deserved was carried out on Christ. But so that he can help us partake in his righteousness, and so that he can turn us away from the damaging path of sin. His motivation is a motivation of love. You discipline your kids. I'm not talking about abuse, but I'm talking about discipline. You discipline your kids... You spank your kids. You do it because you want. I remember, I remember hearing one time, uh, I don't want you to grow up to be a criminal. <laughs> Isn't that great? Listen, you love your kids. You want to prevent them from making mistakes in life that are easy to make. And so you discipline them, right? That's what God does for us. He doesn't do it for, the, for kicks or for glee. He, he's grieved by it. But he does it because he loves us. And so, this was to be a motivation to fear. Now, whenever the Israelites would see God do something amazing, it it kind of make them afraid. Right? Um, I remember the disciples. Here they are, and you know they're... Uh, they're in the boat, and Jesus is, I mean, he's sleeping hardcore. He is, he is out. And uh, nothing can, can seem to wake him. You know, there's the thunder and the lightning and everything going on. And, and here are the disciples. They're bailing water, and they're fighting against the waves. And finally, they, one of them gets ticked off. Look at Jesus. He's laying here asleep. Lord, wake up. Don't you care we're about to die? And he gets up, and he says, peace be still. 
I'd have loved him in there for that, wouldn't you? <laughs> all these huge waves all of a sudden sink and the sea becomes calm. All the clouds and the, the wind and the thunder instantaneously cease. And there's a calm and sunshine. And the disciples, their mouths are open and they're, they can't believe it. And they begin to realize the power that was just exerted. And the Bible says, and they were afraid. <laughs> That's the God we serve. Some people whittle their God down so much that he doesn't inspire any kind of fear. And some people have so redefined God in our culture, they think they can do anything they want to do, get away with anything they want to get away with, and they have no accountability whatsoever, and they think God doesn't care. I want to tell you something. God cares. Jesus loves sinners. God loves sinners. God so loved the world, He gave His Son. But for those who do not trust Christ... There's nothing but justice and eternal wrath that await them in a place called hell. Not something prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But for those who reject Christ, there is no second alternative. There's no plan B. Sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God apart from the blood of Jesus. And so... Those in our culture who want to redefine morality and who want to, to uh, do away with traditional ethics of the past that God has given us will have to answer to God. We'll have to give an account. And you and I, listen, we don't take our cues from morality from the culture. We take them from God's Word. So God gave them this memorial so that they would be motivated to fear him. When you think of someone who tells you, yes, I can give you eternal life. We've, we've seen some cult leaders who will make promises and who uh, will lead people astray. Jesus didn't just make promises. Jesus arose. Think about that for a second. The wind and the waves, that's a small potatoes when you begin to really think about what the resurrection means. Jesus was raised never to die again. Think about the power of that. I want to tell you, there's nobody powerful like our, our Savior. The Bible says at the end of time, Jesus will come back on the clouds of glory. The armies of the world will be gathered against Jerusalem. And Jesus will come back with his saints. And the Bible says, by the brightness of his glory and by the breath of his mouth, the words that he speaks, his enemies will be slain. That's power. Listen, Jesus is not, he's not up there training. He said, well, i got to train for battle. I'm going to have the battle of Armageddon coming up here soon. No! He just shows up and says something. And it's over. That's power. I want to tell you something. 
you're a child of God, God loves you. He's for you. And that ought to encourage you. If you've gone astray, it ought to give you perspective. What do you do if you've gone astray? Well, you need to confess your sin to the Lord. And you need to genuinely repent of that sin. God knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. He knows exactly what's going on in our lives. He sees behind closed doors. We need to confess and repent of sin. And when we do, the discipline will go away. Right? Because what's the motivation of the discipline? To get you on the right path again. But if you don't get back on the right path, God will just turn up the heat. Jonah went down, down, down. Read the book of Jonah. See how many times the word down appears. He kept going down to, to Joppa, down into the boat. and you know, He was finally down in the belly of a fish. Down into a pile of vomit. Down, down, down. Until he said, yes, Lord. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, God does love you. But God hates your sin. In order for you to have a relationship with God, in order for you to escape hell, doesn't matter how many church services you go to. Doesn't matter how much good you do in the community. Without Jesus, there's only one destination, and that's hell. People try to deny it, but it's real. But God loved you so much that he sent Jesus, who lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, that I couldn't live, died the death we deserved at the cross, took the wrath and the full justice of God at the cross, said, it is finished, paid in full. And he rose again. And because of what Jesus has done, you can know eternal life. You can have a relationship with God. All your sins can be wiped out, thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. Isn't that great? far as the east is from the west. This is what Jesus has done for us. But you have to respond to what Jesus has done. And that response is a response of faith and involves two things. It involves a, a decision to surrender your life to follow Jesus and to receive the gift of eternal life and, and, and Jesus into your life. When you make that decision by faith... The Bible says that you will be saved. I love what Romans 10 says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's surrender. And you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you don't know Jesus Christ today, I just want to encourage you to say a very simple prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. Lord Jesus, I trust you to forgive my sin, and I receive you into my life. I receive your eternal life today. And if you sincerely pray from your heart, God will save your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to appreciate what you have done for us and help us respond to it. 
Lord, there are some here today who know you, 